0: You're listening to Policy, Guns & Money, the Aspie podcast. Coming up in the show, capturing the dark side of Xinjiang, the cyber team discuss their latest project mapping China's re-education camps, the centenary of armistice, Brendan reflects on the end of the First World War. But first up, Maddie and Michael discuss the intersection of human rights and national security, how does the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi impact the rule of law, and the ramifications of the new US ambassador to Australia.
1: Thanks for joining me, Michael. You wrote a really interesting piece for The Strategist recently on the need for governments to view human rights as an extension of national security issues. And in it, you sort of specifically mentioned four big events that have occurred this year alone, which demonstrate how, and I'm quoting you here, demonstrate how human rights and hard-edged national security have converged. So I'm interested in getting your thoughts on why you think governments have been so reluctant in the past to, as you say, view human rights as an extension of national security issues.
2: Well, I think decades ago, it was a core part of national security and governments understood that. But there was a drift and... With the confidence that the liberal international order was dominant, human rights stepped back into the background. It was like a public good, people got complacent about it, and it was deeply inconvenient. Now, when you're dealing with an authoritarian regime, raising human rights tends to, to disturb the relationship. So there was this tendency to say, I oh, will have a human rights dialogue, but it will be a separate track of discussions, be officials level, or it'll be behind closed doors, And that is now what has to change, because we have to reawaken to the fact that human rights are not connected to national security, they're part of national security.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I personally couldn't agree more. So the incidents that you specifically mentioned in your piece, so we've got the Saudi killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the botched poisoning of the former Russian spy that resulted in a civilian death, Myanmar's indiscriminate killing of its Rohingya population, and then um, China's re-education camps in Xinjiang, which Aspie's been doing some fascinating research on, I'm sure you're aware All of these issues, though, they raise important questions about, and as you said, about the reach of autocratic states in the 21st century. So by turning a blind eye to these incidents, are we really setting a dangerous precedent for the future? And as an extension on that, in your opinion, what should the consequences be for states that refuse to comply with international human rights norms and
2: and legislation? Well, we are licensing state behaviour. So in the case of Saudi Arabia and Russia, if we do not adequately punish the perpetrators, and I mean this could be as high as state leaders, senior officials, ministers, um, officials in key roles that are connected to these events, if they don't um, receive any consequences for these state-sanctioned murders, then we're licensing more of them. Mm -hmm. So if that's the kind of world we want to live in, then we should express concern and take no action. If we don't want to live in a world where it's okay for states to murder people in the broad light of day, uh, then we need to act and the individuals involved need to have personal consequences to their wealth, to their travel, to their positions.
1: Mm. And they sort of, they haven't really had personal consequences so far. So, I mean, Australia's response... From what I um, understand is that we released a statement saying that um, Australia wouldn't be attending the the Saudi Arabian Future Investment Forum because the Australian representation that was going to go was deemed no longer appropriate. So did that mean that we didn't attend at all or just that, you know, that the foreign minister, Maurice Payne, she herself didn't attend?
2: I'm not sure. But but to me, um, there there are bigger things, aren't there? So do things proceed as normal? Do Australian arms exports to Saudi Arabia happen? Yeah. Do high-level contacts happen? And when the glare of the international spotlight moves on as other world events happen, do we lose sight of this or does it remain a focus? That, that's important. Mm. But I think the Rohingya and um, Uyghur situations, they're about populations yeah. that are being repressed. Some of them have been killed, um, but Some. they're being radicalised and repressed. Now, whether you are worried about human rights in and of themselves, and I am because I think the way humanity treats humanity Mm. is fundamentally important Mm -hmm. and that the UN Charter thinks that too. Uh, But even if you don't care about that, you should care about what these kinds of population-scale actions mean for all of our security. Absolutely,
1: and specifically, the you know the brutalization of the Rohingya population and the camps in China. What is this sort of, in terms of radicalising, like, you know, groups like Al Qaeda and Islamic State? And you mentioned this in your piece. They sort of they play off the narrative, this sort of narrative to you know to recruit more individuals to their cause.
2: Exactly. If you wanted to run a large-scale experiment with 700,000 Rohingyans and 13 million Turkic Muslims, Mm. over 1 million Uyghurs in forcible detention. If if you were a terrorist organisation, you said, I would love to run a controlled experiment to radicalise as many individuals as I could so that I have uh, available recruits and the right environment for me to operate in. Mm. This would be your ideal situation. So the Myanmar state... And the Chinese state are both creating global security problems for all of us over coming decades. And they're doing that by the atrocities they are committing on their own populations.
1: Yeah. In terms of Myanmar, Australia sort of has had, as you said, you know, we've expressed concern but we've taken no real action. So when firm rhetoric isn't matched by concrete actions, what kind of message are we sending to these governments, to the groups on the ground?
2: Well, I think of it as a parent. If I say to my children, don't do that, Mm -hmm. and then they do it in front of me and I don't do anything about that, Yeah. They keep doing it. There's always a problem when there's a gap between words and actions. Mm. So that is the fundamental problem here. Now, the other big thing, I think, particularly about the case of the Chinese state and its incredibly um, repressive mass surveillance, forcible detention and destruction of Uyghur and Turkic Muslim cultural sites, Mm. Um, that is an extraordinary international act at a scale and breadth and speed that is breathtaking. Yeah. Never they're they're seen it before. building re-education camps faster than they built those artificial islands in the South China Sea. Wow. Since the international community got good data on this, including through ASPI's enormously yeah. important primary research.
1: But using satellite imagery, yeah.
2: That shows since the international community turned its, its attention on what the Chinese state was doing to its own citizens in Xinjiang. They have rapidly, they've intensified construction, Mm. and I think they have intensified destruction of Uyghur cultural sites and buildings. They are reacting in the opposite way to the way that humanity requires and global security requires.
1: Mm.
2: Now, it shows us, if this is how the Chinese state under President Xi uses its power against its own citizens, what indicator does that have about how China will use its power globally? Against other states and other citizens,
1: yeah, the China example is uh, interesting because they you know they use it all under the pretext of this is all part of their bid to stamp out extremism in that region, and you know it's clapped under the efforts towards counterterrorism, and this is definitely an area where, as you know, and I'm sorry, I'm talking about counterterrorism is an area where you often have individuals calling for greater incorporation of human rights. Um, into sort of the national security measures used to counter-terrorism. But people who sort of call for this, they're often met with the response of, well, what would you do differently? Um, You know, how would you counter this threat in a different manner? So with that in mind, Michael, what should Australia be doing differently to, as you put it in your piece, resurrect a sense of an international community with the ability to intervene and punish and to hold to account and to act?
2: Well, before we go there, what the Chinese state is doing in Xinjiang is not counterterrorism because mm. there is not uh, any significant terrorist problem there. Yeah. What they're doing well, is more future, like probably. Tom Cruise in future crime.
1: Yeah. But these
2: <laughs> these 13 million Turkic Muslim citizens of the Chinese state have not committed large-scale terrorist acts. There is no evidence no. of large radicalization. There will be as a result of the Chinese programs. Yeah. But... They are solving a non-problem, and they are creating the problem. The they are saying they're solving, and that mm-hmm. problem won't affect just China. It will affect all of us. Yeah. Now this is back to back to your point about well, what what should other countries do? Well, one, understand that this is a global security issue as well as a global human rights issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, focus on the key Chinese officials that are involved in these campaigns whether it's constructing the camps, whether it's directing the security forces, whether it's conducting the mass surveillance, whether it's being public spokespeople to say how lovely this all is and how happy the weakers are. (laughs) Identifying the individuals that are responsible for this and thinking about their finances, their travel and their reputation. That is is the way to to address this. Mm. Uh, But this needs to be an international initiative because China is adept at isolating individual states that raise this. And China's a key proponent of non-interference. Well, in this case, the consequences go beyond any country's border and beyond China's border. Non-interference doesn't apply when the consequences go beyond their border.
1: No, absolutely. It's a worrying trend that we're witnessing.
2: Well, we can act. So we don't have to watch and worry, we can act. And expressions of concern aren't enough.
1: What international mechanisms do we have in place that could sort of act to address this issue? Like the United Nations, are they the best placed organization to address what's happening in China right now?
2: Probably not, uh, because, well, A, China has a veto at the Security Council, and B, China is already showing how they're responding to open questioning of their large and atrocious actions. They're sticking to the line that this is all their internal business and it's all legitimate counterterrorism, which is palpably untrue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, but we can't give up on the UN. The UN can pass resolutions. Even having China block those resolutions is valuable. Uh, So, keeping the pressure on. You mentioned
1: that in your piece, actually. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, that's valuable because they will have to publicly block legitimate international processes. Mm. But secondly, individual states working with like-minded states Um, or in blocks like the EU, US, UK, Australia, Japan, Canada, Mm -hmm. can uh, undertake sanctions against individuals in key positions, both officials and leaders. And that that is another line of action where the UN uh, doesn't work because it's frustrated by China, uh, and we should pursue all avenues. Mm.
1: Well, wrapping up our chat this morning, Michael, I'd love to... Uh, discuss the big news coming out of the States, and I'm not talking about the midterms here. Yesterday, Trump uh, announced that he's decided to fill the long vacant role of US ambassador to Australia. So Arthur B. Culverhouse Jr. He's a former counsel to Ronald Reagan's White House and he's actually known for his work in uh, vetting potential vice president candidates for the Republican primary winners, um, including Mike Pence for Donald Trump actually. So he's been named by the president as the new um, ambassador to Australia. So it might be a little bit too early to tell, but what are the general thoughts around Canberra or even around the ASPE offices on this new appointment?
2: Well, step one, he's been nominated by Donald Trump, so he's got to to be confirmed by the Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that will happen, though, because as you mentioned, Maddie. A.B. Culverhouse, A.B., apparently, as he likes to be known, so yep. he would be Ambassador A.B. Um, <laughs> He's got a certain ring to he it. He has been involved oh. in vetting uh, vice presidential candidates and nominees since 1976. Apparently, oh. he helped out during uh, Gerald Ford's uh, own campaign's vetting process okay. and, as you say, worked in the Reagan White House as counsel. Um, and he he did the vetting for McCain that, that resulted in Sarah Palin. Yep. Uh, quite quite amusingly around Sarah Palin, apparently his advice to John McCain was she's high risk, high reward. Well, I think he got that right, yeah, but the okay. risk dominated in yep. the case of Sarah Palin <laughs> for, for John McCain. Mm. Um, He's... And as you say, he ran the vetting process that resulted in Mike Pence being selected as, as Donald Trump's vice president. Yeah. Now, what does that mean for Australia? Well, it means uh, if we were running a job selection, we got to choose a US, US ambassador, the top selection criteria would be must have a close direct connection to the US president. Yeah. That means when she or he picks up the phone and calls the US president, the president not only picks up the phone but listens to what the US ambassador here in Canberra has to say. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the fact that Arthur Culver- Culverhouse has had this very close direct role selecting Mike Pence and the fact that Mike Pence has turned out to be a standingly good choice in the administration yeah. means he has that access to Donald Trump. Yeah, That's invaluable. Um, secondly, if we got another key cri- criteria, it would be the US ambassador here in Canberra must understand how to work the Washington policy and political machine, connect to US business, and at this particular time, connect well to the US higher education sector. Well, um, Arthur Culverhouse can do all those things. That long experience helping out various administrations uh, working in Washington in a very high-profile international legal firm as the leader of that firm, serving on various intelligence and defense advisory boards, uh, mm. working with the Brookings Institute, uh, yes, a very uh, capable Washington think tank. Yeah, That all means he has the networks and connections mm. um, and that the law firm that he operates in is connected to the U.S. tech sector, uh, all U.S. business as well as the U.S. university sector, yeah, okay. so he's got a Rolodex and a smartphone with all the all the connections that we need. The third criteria that we'd have if we were selecting a U.S. ambassador is that they didn't just want to maintain the alliance. You know, 100 years of mateship. Celebrate the past. <laughs> uh, they need to have an agenda that is restless and is building a closer strategic and economic relationship particularly given our deteriorating strategic environment. Mm. There's a lot of opportunity between Australia and the US, economically and strategically, and having someone with the connections I've just talked about yeah. uh, with an agenda to deepen these relationships, strategic, economic and social, uh, that, that sets this up very well. Now, the other thing is a US ambassador here in Canberra is a public figure. They need to have a voice and they need to have an ear uh, that is attuned to Australian politics mm-hmm. and the Australian domestic debate. Now, Arthur Culverhouse is a deep Washington insider and consummate operator, Yeah, obviously works well across a broad environment, has spent a little bit of time in Australia. People I've spoken to say that he does know uh, a number of people in our national security community okay. and has good connections there.
3: Yeah.
2: So that's the good news, but he will have to establish his own public voice Mm. Um, we've had other ambassadors that have had to do that and have done it very effectively. Um, yeah. John Berry comes to mind. Yeah, okay. Yep. So I think uh, if we'd run a selection process and we'd had A.B. Culverhouse in the field, it's likely he would have been our choice.
1: Oh, really? Over Even over Admiral uh, Harry Even Harris? over Admiral
2: Harry Harris because this now, the alliance needs to broaden from that very close defence and intelligence connection to a much bigger strategic and economic connection. Mm. And this kind of set of professional networks into the US business and higher education community as well as the State Department intelligence and defence policy communities, that's a really good combination at this time. So whether or not that was in Donald Trump's mind, it doesn't Mm. really matter. Um, Who knows what's in Donald Trump's mind? I think we will find this is a very effective ambassador yeah. and broadens and adds new energy to the US-Australian alliance.
1: Okay. Well, that's good. At least we're finishing on something slightly positive. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Awesome. Thanks for chatting with me today, Michael.
2: Thanks, Matt. It'd be lovely to talk about the midterms after we know what the result is.
1: Yes, absolutely. Now you'll hear from Danielle,
0: Nathan and Fergus from ASPE's cyber team discussing their latest report that collates and adds to the current open source research into China's growing network of extrajudicial re-education camps in Xinjiang province.
3: So last week in the International Cyber Policy Centre, we put out a pretty substantial report that attempted to unearth new data and consolidate existing open source data on a cross section of what are commonly referred to as re-education camps in Xinjiang, and what the Chinese Communist Party calls vocational training centres. There are United Nations and NGO estimates out there that place the figure of individuals, predominantly Uyghurs, detained in these camps at between one and two million people. We started this project a few months ago in the International Cyber Policy Center and we have spent a huge amount of time trawling through cyberspace, working on translations, going through other academics, bloggers and digital activists' work, and then producing new data sets such as measurements of these centers and time-lapse footage. I'm here with Fergus Ryan and Nathan Rusa and we're gonna talk about some of the things we've done. And I'm gonna kick it to you first, Nathan, because you really are responsible uh, for the birth of this project. And I like to think that you'd come off your Strava fitness app heat map discovery high and you were looking for something else to do and you were spending a lot of time looking through the region so could you run us through how you started thinking about this project
4: yeah so basically I just saw references to a lot of these camps and it started getting a lot more international media and a lot more attention and I noticed that a few people had gone out and attempted to actually find and locate locate some of these camps and so the work of that so someone called Sean Jung has done a magnificent job in sort of collating a lot of camps that he's found. And when I was first looking at that data set, firstly, it was clear that there that, that didn't cover them all. So it was always exciting to look for more, but more a key part of the element that was looking was growth over time because Sean provided this static picture of what these camps were, but these camps that had evolved and grown a heap since the start or the middle of 2017. So I thought a really valuable piece of information to add to that would be to sort of quantify and measure the growth of these camps. So, sorry.
3: (laughs) No, and the growth of these camps was phenomenal, right? I've actually got the data before me. I'll do a quick sort of snapshot. So since early 2016, we found that there had been a 465% growth in the size of the 28 camps uh, that we looked at, which was only a cross-section of what's out there, but a cross-section that we felt the evidence base was strong or very strong. Uh, And some of the individual camps, I remember, had grown by over 2,000% in about this two-year period. Uh, So that ended up being 2,700,000 meters squared of floor space, which was 43 Melbourne cricket ground stadiums. Don't know how many Sydney football stadiums that is, or probably even more. We had a bit of a debate about which, <laughs> which uh, stadium to, to use as, as a metric. Uh, But I thought, for me at least, the most interesting part of this report was looking at really recent growth. So what was a very interesting and, frankly, I thought quite depressing figure is that the majority, or sorry, the greatest growth over this period occurred over the most recent quarter. So this year, July, August, September, and that was 700 metres squared of additional floor space that was added across the 28 camps. Fergus, do you reckon you could run us through the sort of Chinese language element of this project?
5: Yeah, so as Nathan pointed out, the sort of key data point in this project was the satellite imagery. And so when Nathan was looking at those images, he's seeing highly securitized buildings with razor wire around them and multi perimeter fences and um, features like that. But we took a really conservative approach where even if we had that evidence, we wanted to make it the evidence even more watertight by matching it with documentary evidence. And so that included pictures, videos, tender documents uh, that were put out by the local authorities, Chinese uh, language media reports and social media reports, this this kind of um, documentary evidence. And as I said, it was a really conservative approach. So we, we limited ourselves to documents that specifically talked about these facilities being used in a transformation through education program. Where it was possible, we would find the exact sort of geolocation of those um, facilities and try and cross reference in our database all these different points of data. So, in an attempt to link up the satellite imagery with all these different forms of documentary evidence. And so it was just this huge task, and um, over time we decided that it was uh, probably good to use traffic light system. I think. Danielle, that was probably your idea, try and figure out how to bring some sense and, and rigour to what we were doing.
3: Yeah, it was becoming such a huge project very quickly. Uh, what was your – what did you find most difficult?
5: Um, just the sort of – the rabbit holes that you go yeah. down. Um, and So many. There's <laughs> So many rabbit <laughs> yeah. holes. And uh, it would just – it felt like it was a project that – um, would never end, frankly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and given the sort of depressing nature of what we're studying, it, was, it, it felt pretty grim to mm. be day in, day out gathering this evidence to put together to paint this picture. Thankfully, the sort of the response that the report um, has got has has been huge, mm. and the the sort of media coverage of it has um, has been really great. Yeah. Um, and it it even sort of prompted. Um, the Chinese uh, government through the Chinese foreign ministry to Uh, react to it.
3: Yes, and I actually have that reaction here, which occurred the next day, because as well as our report, the ABC did a fantastic digital visualisation of some of the data and then did a whole bunch of original reporting. So it got a much greater, I think, audience than your average think tank report would reach, uh, which I think we're very grateful for. And the next day, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, in their daily press brief, field of questions saying that the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has released a report on Xinjiang's re-education centres that shows an expansion in size of these centres since 2016. Based on satellite image analysis, the institute found the most expansion took place in the most recent quarter. Has the number of extremists and criminals in Xinjiang expanded in the past two years with a faster growth rate this year? Uh, and I'll only read the fa- the first bit of that answer, which was first of all, this was from the spokesperson from from chinese from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And he said, first of all, I wonder on what objective foundations did this institution base its report, and what standards did this so-called satellite <laughs> image analysis use, uh, which might be a good segue to talk about how you went about Nathan. Uh, measuring some of these camps and looking at this
4: growth. For sure. So I think the most important thing to talk about is just in a lot of cases, the unambiguity of the use of these camps. So once you find them, a lot of them are basically surrounded on all sides by tall, tall brick walls. They have watchtowers posted every corner. And a lot of the times the individual buildings have almost exercise yards fenced off by two, three metre high green fencing. And in a lot of ways, once you see these camps, it's a pretty obvious feature. A lot of them share a lot of common, common architecture. And the trouble is finding the documentary proof to sort of add this extra element to it. So a lot of the times, some of the addresses come from the tenders, which contain a bit of detail about the location. And then you sort of just scout out that location, looking for the individual camps and looking for buildings or facilities that fit the signature of those camps. And I think it would probably be worth adding a couple more details to the figures that we gave. So the original growth of 465% since 2016, I think it should be noted that a lot of these camps have been repurposed from from other uses. So some of them have come from large residential housing estates. A lot of them used to be schools and some of them even used to be hospitals and um, disease treatment centres. So that growth includes those buildings that have been reappropriated. Once you look at the actual growth of buildings that have been used as re-education camps, you see a much sharper increase. And additionally, because of our, the rigour that we put into making sure that our, that our analysis was robust and we only looked at the most confirmed camps, That most recent growth also lacks a lot of newer camps that have popped up in recent months, which is still being constructed and still being opened. So when you look at it from from the growth of buildings, a lot of these facilities have grown from an old-fashioned detention centre with a single prison wing to these enormous facilities with about five prison wings and then different blocks, several different extra blocks, which contain re-education housing. You've seen a lot of absolute growth that altogether comes to about... 2.7 million square meters, which by comparison is about the area of Monaco that has been built and has been reappropriated in some cases to become re-education camps and other sort of detention holding facilities for ethnic and religious minorities in Western China.
3: And I mean, a lot of that data, Nathan, brings us back to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when they said, you know, what standards did we use in this research?
5: Mm. And on that, I think, um, I think it's actually come up at the um, Chinese Foreign Ministry uh, press conference a couple of times, and it seems that this is their sort of rote response. You know, what has this um, think tank, what was the methodology that this think tank used? Well, the, the one thing that I'd really like to emphasize is that we not only put out the report on um, mapping these internment camps in Xinjiang, but we also have been fully transparent with the data that we use so if listeners go to the aspie website and check out the report there's also a link there to the google spreadsheet of the database that shows all these different points of evidence the links to the um to the uh geo-locations of where these camps are on that you can check out yourself on google earth as well as all of the documentary evidence that we've used to build up this case
3: yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not, a, and it's also not a, a static database in that we're happy to add to it. Uh, we've already had a number of academics and journalists uh, send us through uh, huge amounts of sort of documents that we can uh, go through. Uh, I think you can lead, you can lead the charge, Fergus, go through all of that and try to geolocate more of that uh, and add that to the database. So we're also very happy to help collect more information because I think it is a very useful public database.
0: Finally, Brendan was kind enough to share his reflections of the end of the First World War, including a very poignant story of an Aussie digger and his music. Brendan, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today.
6: Thanks very much, Renee.
0: This Sunday will mark 100 years since the armistice between the Allies and Germany, which in of itself was significant because it was the end of World War I. I was very interested as to what role the Australian troops played leading up to that victory.
6: Well, Renee, it played a very significant role. By the end of the war, what was left of the Australian Imperial Force was a battle-hardened and well-equipped army of volunteers. Many of these men had been fighting for four years or more, from Gallipoli to the Western Front. They were under the command of one of the war's most competent commanders, Lieutenant General John Monash. Commanders on both sides had gone into the war totally unprepared for the industrial-style conflict that they encountered, and many came up with no more sophisticated an answer than to send battalion after battalion into massed machine gun and artillery fire. Monash was determined to fight and to win, and to avoid that sort of slaughter. He was a meticulous planner, and very effectively combined tanks, artillery, aircraft, and infantry to smash through German trench lines. In July 1918, the Germans launched a massive offensive that drove the Allied armies back and got to within 80 kilometres of Paris. The Australians played a key role in blunting that attack and once the Germans were forced to retreat and breaking through their main defensive structure, the Hindenburg Line.
0: I'm sure many people will be considering the sheer vastness of the losses encountered from World War I when we do observe our one minute of silence at 11am on Sunday. But I was curious, what are the actual numbers? How many diggers went over and how many never returned?
6: Well, Renee, for a nation which was then around 5 million people, the losses were truly appalling. Nearly 332,000 men and women served overseas. More than 60,000 of them were killed, and 137,000 were wounded. And according to the Australian War Memorial, that's a casualty rate of around 65%. It's truly horrific. If you stop in almost any small town in Australia, you can read the cost on the ubiquitous memorials. Sometimes there's two or three names from the same family, brothers or fathers and sons. The war ended with the armistice on November 11, 1918, but the suffering didn't stop then. Many soldiers died later of wounds or had their lives shortened by their injuries and their experiences. Some of those who came home ostensibly uninjured were suffering from what we'd now call post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, And some of them killed themselves as late as the 1930s. They were still victims of the war, as were the families of soldiers who who turned to alcohol or became antisocial and insular.
0: And this, of course, was supposed to be the war that ended all wars. And I guess it's a bit of of a complicated question, but in and of itself history has answered it. Why didn't it?
6: Look, historians are going to come up with a number of different answers And I think they'll all be partly right. Uh, Despite the horrors of what we later came to refer to as the First World War, the bulk of the physical destruction in Europe fell on France and Belgium and on Russia. The German landscape emerged relatively unscathed because there hadn't been a great deal of fighting. The early bombers dropped bombs on Berlin and elsewhere, but the damage wasn't great. Also, many in the German army felt that they'd been robbed of victory. Some of them, when they were told of the ceasefire, actually thought that the Allies had surrendered. During the fighting, the Royal Navy in particular had imposed on Germany a debilitating blockade, which brought big shortages at home. Then came massive reparations payments imposed by the Allied nations, which slowed Germany's economic recovery and stoked resentment in the population. All of that was eventually harnessed by Hitler and his Nazis. That had a flow-on effect. When some Germans sought a ceasefire during the Second World War, Allied and Russian commanders were determined not to let that happen again. And the result Mm. was very widespread destruction across Germany.
0: Mm. In all your time as a defence journalist, have you ever come across any particular stories about uh, an Australian digger that really stuck with you or do you have a favourite story about an Australian soldier?
6: I think one of the most poignant stories that I've ever heard um, was a story about a young man called Frederick Septimus Kelly who was in a merchant family in Sydney. They were quite wealthy. He was sent to Eton and he was there when the war began. And uh, young Kelly was a, a remarkably clever man. He joined up with the British forces, because in those days, that's what you did. If you, Australian, you that you felt one was as good as the other. Um, a lot of British people joined the Australian forces in Australia. And uh, Kelly was a remarkable person. He was a, an extraordinarily skilled composer, and he was also a rower of international note. He won a gold medal in the Olympics in years before the First World War and he was considered the the sort of the classical scholar in single skulls in the world for a couple of decades Mm -hmm. after the war. His record was not broken until Mm -hmm. the 1930s. Now, Kelly was put into a a naval battalion uh, which was serving on land and he wrote music in his dugout in in the trenches on the Western Front Know, quite often with heavy gunfire in the background, and, uh, his music is considered very brilliant. He was very sadly killed leading an attack mm. um, in I think 1916 on the Somme. Mm. But it's um, a very poignant reflection of of loss. Mm. That sort of loss was repeated well 60,000 times over. But some people clearly were particularly talented. An enormous mm. loss to the psyche and and the culture of the country
0: yes it's certainly just an unimaginable amount of loss brendan thank you so much for taking the time today
6: thanks very much renee
0: thanks for listening to policy guns and money we'll be back in two weeks